0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: And It's coming up to 4 o'clock and it's Jan Bartlett until 6 o'clock and it's great to be back. First today, a visit to Venezuela by Joe Montero and two friends. The Gene Ethics segment with Bob Phelps. Hypocrisy and hand-wringing. You're thinking about Christchurch and other issues around. It's been happening in the last couple of weeks. I'll be speaking with Debbie Brennan. The Legacy of Nuclear Testing in the Pacific and elsewhere in the world with Nick McClellan. But let's hear it first for Mr. Kevin
2: Hilly. A week, Jan Lister, when a week that was cannot ignore the New Zealand terrorist massacre. It's over a week, but there was no Tuesday home time last week due to Jan coming down with the dreaded something. But obviously, we can't treat it lightly, humorously, satirically. We can but iterate the comments made by numerous programmers on this station and inside the places. The danger of white supremacist neo-fascism, the relationship between neo-fascists and the people who are supposed to monitor and or police them. The concentration of so-called security forces on the left of politics. And in recent years, Islamophobia, African youth, the whipping up of anti-progressive and racist hatred by the usual suspects who now deny any role in their role by the media, particularly the Murdoch media. the blaming of, quote, left extremists whenever there is a clash with fascists. This year's Invasion Day march a prime example when a maverick white supremacist at Flinders Street clashed with marches and was portrayed as Invasion Day March violence. Violent blacks violating our great national day, the people preaching cooperation, community, genuine fairness, integration, acceptance are depicted and spied on and placed as the threat. Back in the anti Vietnam War campaign calling for peace, for an end to the slaughter, we were spied on, phone tapped and followed incessantly by ASIO, the Commonwealth Coppers, the State Special Branch, a political police bent on monitoring left wing activists. A war. Yet another U.S. invasion with Australia playing its lapdog role, like wars since based on lies. Menzies had concocted the evidence we said, proven true when the 30-year cabinet papers were released. Yet the authorities saw us as the threat, and those who supported war and slaughter, those who profited from war and slaughter, needed protection from us. But then the state apparatus exists to protect the dominant means of production, to protect, in our case, capitalism. Thus it will be so until we change the means of production, and now the concentration on controlling social media, which needs controlling but fails the real necessity, the condemnation and proper surveillance and policing of the real threat. The hypocrisy and myopia of the usual suspects now decrying the massacre after years of racism, Islamophobia, whipping up hatred against the other, is breathtaking. On which, back to normal week that was, on which I can't help myself, Constable Peter Duffer declared he is proud of his role and what he has achieved as Minister for Concentration Camp's razor wire had sink the boats and keeping us secure, leaving us speechless. Also leaving us speechless, having mentioned Lord Rupert of Wapping and social media, Lord Rupert, well, news very limited on his behalf, made a submission to this true blue Aussie competition and consumer Commission inquiry into digital platforms that the Commission must break up Google's operations to curb its abuse of its dominant market power. Curb abuse of dominant market power? Lord Rupert, what can we say again? Google threatening and undermining the security and funding of news and journalism strikes at the very heart of our system of democracy. The man who has done so much for the heart of our system of democracy submitted. Google's position as gatekeeper and its market power in the ad tech stack creates real and serious threats to the ability of publishers such as News Very Limited cop, to generate sufficient sufficiently turns in order to viably fund news and journalism, which from our point of view sounds pretty encouraging and on journalism good to see Lord Rupert in defending journalism dropping a split infinitive right in the middle of it all. But maybe it shouldn't leave us speechless and seeing I'm talking about it, it probably hasn't. That generate sufficient returns just might sum up the basis of his case, given it's just a touch rich for the rich Lord Rupert to urge a huge corporate international behemoth be broken up. Wonder if they do see the irony of it all, but then we must be fair, Lord Rupert is one of the great philanthropists, indeed, he's the answer to homelessness, he told us so himself, with all humility." His whopping sin has been running these full-page house ads, extolling its role, bringing us all the news we need to know. It's balance and objectivity. And this week ran a page telling us all the great philanthropy Lord Rupert brings to Melbourne, including, ask Lizzie, quote, a directory for the homeless providing information on housing, food and legal help, a much-needed tool for the rising rate of homelessness in true blue Aussie. Although if Lord Rupert's doing so much to combat homelessness, how come it's rising? Because as we pass the homeless on our streets, we're taken by how they're all absorbed on their computers and expensive smartphones seeking Lord Rupert's advice and can assume the legal help bit comes in handy when they're apprehended for knocking off a bit of food to stave off starvation. And how distressed Lord Rupert was that dear little brainwashed school students were taking to the classroom of the streets to call for genuine action over climate change, none of their puerile business, when their place was in the classrooms of the non-brainwashed. The same day a story telling us what they should have been learning, kids need schooling about our increasingly cashless society. A generation of tap-and-go credit card kids need to learn the value of digital money The story opened, and if anyone could teach them the value of a quid, it's Lord Rupert. Yet there they were, being brainwashed on the streets. On great writing and the need for industry to observe self-regulation rather than the costly, time-absorbing red and green and every other coloured tape of the bloated hand of the public sector, and the Her Most Gracious Majesty's Financial Royal Commission confirmed the huge success of self-regulation, It was hugely successful, uh, until the bloody Royal Commission came along. Yeah, okay, okay, but a new self-regulatory insurance industry code of conduct has been put on hold after complaints it was not written in comprehensible English. Sorry, sorry, they conceded. We're so used to writing policies and worst pack bank has decided to abandon its personal advice service with big supremo O'Brien Hurts' customers blaming layers of regulation and legislation, the bloated hand of again. OK, we are still able to charge customers for financial advice, but, but now they expect us to actually provide it. Oh, that Her Most Gracious Majesty's Commission has so much to answer for. But if the selfless practitioners of the greatest little economic order of them all think they've got it tough here, spare a thought for their U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world-based counterparts. In New York, the governor plans a special tax on properties valued at more than $7 million owned by non-residents to raise funds for the public transport system, public housing, and other public services he says are being run down and here's where satire can take a rest because yet again we can't out satire the gasping filthy rich donna olshan a big end of town real estate mogul rightfully slammed the proposal as class warfare against the rich oh can we think of anything more abhorrent why punish them for being rich and living more of the time somewhere else why, why, we have to ask. And Rachel Oslo Losbarter, a re- realty broker, made a very, very strong case against the law. It makes the city look very unfair. These people don't take the subway. I mean, how can we even in satire say it any better than that? Of course they don't. And these people may not pay income tax, Rachel went on, but they pay plenty. They just don't buy a hot dog. They go to all the high end restaurants Gucci and Chanel. A sentiment endorsed by Barry Hirsch, a New York University real estate professor and former property developer. The very rich really hate taxes, he said. Something we've never noticed, of course. Again, no embellishment, direct quote, as if we need to be told. Back here, that great worry for our very rich who really hate taxes, slow wages growth. Their desire to pay higher wages if only lazy, avaricious workers could be a bit more productive. Well, the Reserve Bankers brought out a report agreeing that since 2012, real wages had grown ever so slowly, or declined ever so quickly, depending how we look at it, despite, quote, solid productivity growth. A formula for solid wage growth now, I hear you say. Sorry to disappoint you, but no, no. We need to take a long-term view, the bank said, and let's be clear there's absolutely no connection between this and our earlier comment that the apparatus of the state exists to protect the economic order. A long-term view, the bank said, meaning we assume forget the solid productivity growth for the past seven years of wage stagnation and let's start again. Whip workers into a bit more productivity and maybe, maybe a small wage increase, although Given the seven years of solid productivity growth somehow escaped sundry chambers of property and members altogether, and they didn't realize they could provide wage rises, workers need to come up with much more than just solid productivity growth if they also expect to be paid. Finally, these warnings about salmonella being found in eggs. Maybe it's just an example of solidarity. The eggs have simply gone out in sympathy with Egg Boy and Fraser hanging them's head. Students marching in their thousands, student Egg Boy egging Fraser. It's been a good week for education. Good afternoon.
1: And that was Mr. Kevin Healy. I'm speaking now with Joe Montero, one of three, on a recent delegation to Venezuela. They spent two weeks in the country, and um, they're having a report back this Wednesday in Carlton. But I caught up with Joe and asked him first, what was the catalyst for this very short visit?
3: Well, the president for the delegation was uh, the lack of information coming from the ground. I mean, most of what we hear in Australia produced by, in Melbourne, the Herald Sun and uh, like media and it was thought there was an important need to go there, find out the facts, clear the air.
1: Were you able to fly direct to Venezuela?
3: No, there are no direct flights to Venezuela. Not only that, there's no direct anything much, even uh, communications, uh, financial system, trade. So uh, they're completely locked out. So we had to fly to Chile and uh, catch a plane via Panama.
1: Is that a recent thing that they're cut off like that, or has that been quite a while?
3: I'm not sure. I, I don't think there's been much flying into uh, into Venezuela ever, uh, as far as you know, uh, passengers go. But certainly there is nothing now.
1: Now you had um, not been there before. I, I imagine that though that you had a fair few expectations. What were those expectations, particularly, as you said, um, the mainstream media? And when you say the Herald Sun, well, it's not only that, it's SBS, it's the ABC, it's the Guardian, it's just about across the board.
3: It has been across the board. And I suppose there's a bit of an inkling that maybe there's some truth in what they're saying. And so we went to see if that was the case. What we found was... In the sense that that wasn't the case but we all, we were also uh, it was unexpected in many ways what we found. We expected a very tense society we found that in many ways it wasn't uh, and you know, it's a bit of a party society actually, you know, they, they do love salsas and Latin rhythms there and you, you hear the music everywhere and so that mood really prevailed.
1: Are there the different people sort of segregated in some sense, the yeah, middle class and the working class? Very
3: much. And you see this everywhere. You see it mostly in Caracas. There are really several, what they call barrios for the well to do, those for working class people, and those for who are the poorest, who tend to be up the mountains. Caracas is in a kind of valley with mountains almost right around it. And the poorer people live in the higher slater, which is a bit different to places like Australia.
1: And what are the conditions like for the poorer people?
3: If you think of the image of the favelas in uh, Rio, in Brazil, it's very similar. The buildings look pretty much the same. They are bits and pieces tacked onto each other.
1: And what about down low with the, say, the working class? What, the, uh,
3: it, it is, it is, the results are the same. Uh, we stayed in the uh, Barrio Viejo, in, pretty much in the centre. It was actually near, not far, very close to the Presidential Palace. So we, it's old buildings, people make do, a lot of soft renovation goes on there. And in some ways, yeah, people build onto what already exists. Uh, they find creative ways to get around and actually create a home.
1: And where do the middle class and the elites live?
3: Uh, they tend to live in apartments. And there are occasionally I saw small, closed communities. But it looks very different. They're newer buildings, much newer buildings. The thing that stands out is that uh, people who live in these areas, do not cross over to the other areas and vice versa very much at all. So there's little communication that they are two worlds in one country.
1: Is it a big city or a small city, Caracas?
3: It doesn't take up an, the area of a city like Melbourne, but it does have a population of around 6 million. It's pretty hard to say because most well, not most, but a a significant part, and some of the poorer communities are are not only on the hills facing the centre of the city, but on the hills beyond. So there are what appear like villages going on for some distances that are actually part of Caracas.
1: How do the people organise themselves?
3: That's the big thing we found. Above everything else, there is a new movement there. Uh, it really began during uh, be, before Maduro, during Chavez's time, to create what was called then, and still called, a new arm of political power. This is basically a system of self-government at the very local level. I'm talking about in places where it might be one or two blocks of people at a wider, in the local community level, regional level, and so on. And committees are set up. They're generally elected committees. They are the people who live in these areas. And they do two things, or three things, actually. They actually supervise government services where they can to make sure they're meeting their community's needs. They actually run independent services quite often. They may or may not get government funding quite often. They don't want government funding. They want to be independent. And thirdly, they are involved in the creation of new local economies. In other words, building new local industries.
1: And where do they get the resources from?
3: Often, they get their own resources. Very hard, and it takes time. But there's a certain pride there in saying we want to do this ourselves. This movement, which is widespread, spread through, through the country, uh, in the capital and in the countryside, is about challenging state power and creating a new future of a self-managed society.
1: Is food production part of this?
3: Yes, yes, quite often, and it it brings up a great example uh, over near the frontier when we were there, the frontier with Colombia. We met some people, uh, some peasant farmer people, and we met some people who were working with them. And one thing that they have done, they've actually taken over the home, the big mansion of one of the landowners, who's actually, I can't remember the name, it's an Irish-sounded name, but uh, he'd never been. They, uh, What they said, look, the owner only used this for the occasional weekend barbecue. Uh, they are actually turning it into an agricultural school to actually train farmers there to do to actually grow new crops, but also in a sustainable way. They want to encourage sustainable agriculture there. And this is one of the projects we're actually bringing back for some help because to kick it off, they would like us to contribute $7,000. So we're going to see how we can raise that.
1: What sort of food are they planning or are they producing there?
3: They eat a lot of corn. Being in Latin America, corn's very much a staple uh, of the diet. They eat quite a bit of rice as well. They do have regions uh, where they grow rice, tropical fruits. Chavez encouraged farmers to plant coconut trees because it is indigenous to the... Well, I don't know whether it's indigenous, but certainly it's a tropical climate and it's there everywhere and it produces food very easily with little... A little amount of land and nutritious uh, but also there's a lot more attention being paid to growing vegetables fruits that sort of thing
1: so if you've got the transport to get the food to the people there is food for the people
3: there is food, uh, and the transport is usually there. I, I mean, the main problem is transport, of course, with no electricity. For instance, the metro in Caracas wasn't working, but that's, that's not the problem. They're doing okay food wise. That is not a problem. Uh, and when we're told that, you know, people are going hungry, it's not true. What they told us, it was true in 2016 that was when the sanctions started to really bite. And that was the time where, where the opposition got control of the Congress during an election at the time. But food production has increased so far, uh, since then I should say. Also one thing which is actually helping people a lot, the government is, has put in a system where every household gets a box of staples once a month things like oil, flour, sugar, rice, pasta, and a few other things, not because they're in short supply. It's because in the current circumstances of the financial side of the economy, speculators had got in, cornered the market, and actually put the prices through the roof. And one of the responses of the government has been, not only to help people out in this way, but to use this as a means to counter the speculators. What they pay for this box of goodies amounts to about 20 cents if they've got enough money on them. Everybody gets that. Mm -hmm. Every single household Mm -hmm. is entitled to that. And that is distributed by the local committees that are set up on a local basis. Tell me what it was like
1: with the power outage and what the people were feeling and arguing about why it happened?
3: They are pretty clear across the board, even people who are not that keen on the government. The intelligence there is that the United States did it.
1: Uh, It's never happened before.
3: No, it hasn't. Uh, There has been a series of constant uh, economic sabotage the blowing up or setting on fire plants and digital sort of stuff. But they've all been on a smaller scale up to this one. This one was huge. It cut out power, 90% of the country's power supply, which meant not only no electricity, it meant no communications, no internet, no telephone, no nothing, and it meant no running water.
1: How did the people react to that where you were?
3: That's a very important question because it, what you would expect normally people would react with some sort of anger and frustration. They actually, in a may took it in their stride. And, I mean, we saw people queuing up for water, for instance, uh, in different uh, distribution points. And the attitude was that, oh look, this is what we have to go through. We are at war. And we must be patient. That That is the attitude.
1: So they really believe that they're at
4: war with yes. the US?
3: They say so.
1: Yeah.
4: Uh,
3: they say so. Uh, many are expecting a military invasion. Most, uh, well, pretty much everybody says they hope it doesn't happen, of course, because the uh, the cost would be horrendous. But they also say, That they are prepared to put themselves on the line. I'm talking about ordinary people in the street who I came across and the others came across say, I'm prepared to put myself on the line. One of the things that has emerged over the last few years has been a civilian militia, which is trained and armed. And they are part of the front line. They are civilians. They do support the government. There are about 2 million of them in the country. We're talking about 2 million, a population of around 30 million.
1: Why do they see that necessary? Because it is a big army, isn't it?
3: Well, this is separate from the army. The the army is about 350,000 strong, I understand. And there's a police force about similar size. And there's also National Guard, which is a similar size. So we're talking about close to a million there, plus on this, the local militias, now they're run at a lo- on a local basis uh, they do cooperate with the army and the police, they who say are very much chavistas, I mean every soldier every soldier, every policeman is in the country uh, otherwise they, they probably wouldn't last the force that long I mean it's part of the history of the place
1: Who's training these militias?
3: Uh, the army they are they are they're also arming them
1: is the military visible on the street at all or the militias
3: Uh, the militias in Caracas for instance uh, particularly one day we were there and there was a bit of a festival going on and that was put on by the militias so there were groups of militias sort of up and down the street but yeah you do see them Uh, they help I mean, the Army's main role there is it guards the presidential palace and the uh, the official buildings, and they are helped by the militia. The militia also, uh, for instance, protect Chavez's resting place up in the mountain. That's looked after by the militia.
1: Tell me what it's like at the border and and what the people were saying to you about what they thought of the so-called aid from the U.S.,
3: well, we d- we did ask uh, a number of people that, uh, and basically they the say good example is One fellow reckons uh, he turned out didn't know then. Turned out that he was uh, he, he was uh, you know, a principal figure in his local militia, but he said it was we stopped them, the militia. That 500 of us turned up at that point, uh, which was never mentioned in the media, and. Their attitude was, and the attitude of other people is, this was not Food Aid. This was a cover to actually bring in armed operatives.
1: It didn't happen.
3: It didn't happen.
1: And it was never going to happen.
3: That's what they said. It's not going to happen. I mean, one thing that that was said, we had an interesting meeting with the general commanding, the the region, uh, and one thing that he did tell us is that the Americans do not understand us. They don't understand our history and don't understand our army. Our army is not separate from the population. We are part of the people. We have that tradition and it's much stronger now. And uh, they are facing a population. If they want to come in, uh, they'll get bogged down there.
1: I did read just today that the, the Russians are sending troops into Venezuela. Have you read that?
3: i haven 't read that uh, there have been historical uh, re- historical relationship which goes beyond you know into the past sometime with Russia and the Soviet Union as it was in the past and there are with a number of countries of there's obviously some relationship with Cuba there is with China there is with Iran and other middle eastern countries uh South Africa is another one. South Africa is actually a kind of parallel between South Africa in, and Venezuela. It's recognised in both places because they had the majority uh, African population were ruled by a system that was controlled by a wide section of the population and landowners. And Venezuela's got a kind of an equivalent of that. So, so there is that mutual support. Uh, but there are also a bunch of other countries that are coming, Latin American countries, but also in other parts of the world. And it's one thing that should be noted. In the whole of Asia, or the Asian, the wider Asian re- region, the Australian government is the only one that has actually gone behind the alternative, so-called alternative bread, is it?
1: What do people
3: know about that man? The ordinary people. They don't, even much of the opposition doesn't like him. Uh, that comes across. He's old Harvard boy. He studied the United States for a long time. And he's not, he's not the only one, but he did. And he's seen it as somebody who was actually always been very close to the intelligence, the Central Intelligence Agency and so on. There is a rumour around, I don't know whether it's true or not, that he actually did service for the Americans in the former Yugoslavia and maybe other parts of the world. That may or may not be true, but it's certainly the understanding that it's pretty widespread that he's some kind of operative. He is quickly losing support. Uh, you know, while we were there, uh, there was, he did call, that was his last, rally uh, in Maracas, two different sources uh, told me that uh, he attracted about 1,500 people on this one and never received much publicity. The uh, There was a counter one supporting Maduro, which is also down, and, and the power system and lack of transport had something to do with it, but it was much bigger. We're talking about 50,000 50, to 100,000, so it, it, it's quite different. It is a show of loss of support for, uh, for Guaido. There is at the moment a new alliance building, something that roughly translates into a patriotic front, where the pro Shavista political parties and sections of the opposition are starting to talk. They're starting to talk because... That they're starting to consider that the sovereignty of Venezuela is the most important political question at the moment and that other differences should be put aside until this has been safeguarded. So they are starting to move against Guaido. I suspect, and I have heard, that an added feature of that is that Guaido was not... Formerly one of the leading members of the opposition, and there are some within that who have got their nose out of joint because the United States chose somebody over their heads.
1: You were a very small delegation from Australia. Did you meet other delegations there from other countries?
3: No, we didn't. We came across uh, we came across an American delegation, uh, which was much better, Was eight in theirs. But we, we were doing something different. We were focusing actually on talking to the people and we were the first to go to the frontier with Colombia. Uh, so we were doing other things. But there, I think they are starting to, starting to come. There was a, a number of delegations just before we arrived from other parts of Latin America who were there in some form of a conference but we didn't come across them.
1: Is it a fact that aid destined for Venezuela has been turned down by European countries? i heard you talk before about Madrid or Spain.
3: Look, it's been messy because one of the problems uh, that this, and I say so-called foreign aid has, that organisations like the International Red Cross have come out and publicly said that this is not genuine aid. It also doesn't match very well when actual aid coming in, uh, real aid coming in, is actually being blocked physically by the United States. And the recent case is that a plane load of medicines that was actually bought from the government of Qatar, but... By the government of Venezuela was actually confiscated in Madrid, in Spain when the plane had to land there in transit so taking away and preventing having sanctions and then talking about aid is a contradiction
1: What about the Cuban connection with Venezuela at the moment? there still a lot of Cuban doctors in Venezuela
3: No, not, not so much I, I, I from what I know, yes, a few do, do exist, but the Cuban doctor's role was to help set up, train people. Now they've gone down the road where they, they have developed their own people. They do have clinics set up and so on. So they're not required if, or they're not needed as they were a few years
1: ago. Talk for a few moments about your ADA package that you're trying to get together for Venezuela?
3: Well one of them is is trying to help with this agricultural college uh, because with $7,000 they can actually get it moving and actually get students in and start teaching that's all they need the other major aid package and this came uh, when we talked to people in Caracas that uh, is we are exploring the intention, well, the logistics of the intention to actually send real aid to Venezuela. Uh, We're talking in terms of medicines. We're talking in terms of computers and the technology and a number of other things, not food, a number of other things that are really in short supply. Power generators is a big one, pumps to actually get water. So we need to, that's the help that they need at the moment uh, to get through the difficulties and and build the future.
1: And how are you going to get it through? How are you going to raise this money? Or how can people help to raise the money? Well,
3: that will be coming out. We haven't actually set up the mechanism yet but it will come across. The difficulty we've got, and I understand there, there is a means, because of the boycott, we can't send uh, anything to Venezuela directly, so we've got to find a route there, but we can do it.
1: Finally, Joe, there is a meeting tomorrow night for a report back on the, the visit by the three of you.
3: There is. And uh, we've got a lot to say, uh, as you might imagine. And there will also be an opportunity there for people to discuss some of the issues, to ask questions.
1: Do you have the address or do you want me to give it?
3: Yes, uh, it's at uh, RMIT, uh, building the corner of Ligon and Queensbury Streets, up to the fourth floor. If you do turn up, which you should... You'd be directed uh, to the actual room.
1: Seven o'clock?
3: Seven o'clock.
1: Final words, Joe?
3: Yeah. I, on my last day there, I, I went up up the mountain to Chavez's resting place. And his sarcophagus is there, uh, standing there. And there are a constant stream of people uh, going in there, Paying their respects and so on, and it's a beautiful spot because it looks over Caracas. Uh, what I, I was told there to that was where his initial attempt to take over the government back in the, uh ninety-eight, uh, the one that didn't work out, was planned from there. His group of officers were there, but anyway, they built that, uh, and and it's quite emotional. There's a cannon there which goes off every day at exactly four thirty five uh, PM, uh the moment of his death. And a crowd gathers every day and when he goes off it makes a whole of a noise, a lot of you know cloud of smoke. Uh, and the scene is really moving because people uh, are brought to tears, people start shouting and waving their fists around, you know slogans and that, and that happens every day without fail. Uh, And I thought it was quite a a, a fitting end to the visit uh, to Caracas.
1: I've been speaking with Joe Montero, one of a a three-person delegation who recently had come back from Venezuela, and that report back is tomorrow evening, 7pm, at the RMIT building which is on the corner of Lygon and Queensbury Street in Carlton I'm quite sure you know the building it's on the fourth floor so off you go to hear them all talk about what they did, who they saw and who they spoke to
4: This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR 8.55am Melbourne, Australia
3: Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true that if all the people work collectively there just might be something we can do and everything can change.
1: On the line now is Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. First up, Bob, another case in a Californian court where a federal jury has found Monsanto's Roundup herbicide played a big part in tri- triggering Edwin Hardeman's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, a cancer that affects the immune system. Is this a mirror case of the earlier one concerning Dwayne Johnson?
0: Well, we don't yet know the result in full, so uh, let's reserve judgment for the moment. But yes, Edwin Hardiman's case against Monsanto for his exposure, his regular exposure to the uh, herbicide roundup has led to the jury deciding that uh, yes, Monsanto was liable for the, for the cancer that uh, Hardiman got. It's now up to the jury to weigh the amount of liability and damages and that will be after hearing further evidence about how Monsanto unduly influenced government regulators and uh, wrote material for cancer researchers which is coming out now, uh, particularly in Europe just uh, over the weekend we found out that um, Monsanto thoroughly massaged the data there to try to show that its um, herbicide Roundup was uh, safe when it isn't.
1: Activists have known that for quite a while haven't they?
0: Well the evidence has been gradually accumulating and uh, we saw a lot of it come to light in the Dwayne Johnson case last year, Duane also suffering from non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Was awarded $78 million. The new owner of Monsanto is now in a uh, pretty tough place, really. When they bought Monsanto last June, I believe Monsanto said, Well, we'll give you $250 million against these cases that might come up later so that you can settle them. But there are now over 11,000 cases pending. So even at a $1 million each, that would be something like $11 billion, which is not small change even for a company the size of Bayer. Uh, Their shares on the market are taking a bit of a hit. There are more cases coming up. I think what will happen is that once um, two or three of these cases are settled or um, are decided in favour of the uh, plaintiffs, there's another one coming up next week, that uh, perhaps Bayer will want to come to the table and start suggesting some sort of settlement process so that it can deal with the other 11,000 cases as well. We hope that uh, the trend to take uh, round off up off the market and out of use by people like um, local councils and so on for weed management in schools and playgrounds and so on will gradually accelerate as a result of these findings.
1: Is it necessary for these cases to be heard in places other than California?
0: That's been the trigger, really, because um, as we saw with um, asbestos cases in Australia, what James Hardy did in that case was to simply delay the cases until the the victims of uh, asbestos uh, exposure died, and then there was no case to answer. But in California, they've got a a rule where um, if somebody has got a, a terminal illness and is going to die soon... Uh, cases against the companies can be expedited so that their dependents their families can actually receive compensation that's what brought the Dwayne johnson case and the edwin hardiman cases to court in california but as i mentioned there are 11,000 cases in the usa and i think that um this is going to spill over into many of those others as well which will be in other parts of the country
1: are there suits also in europe at the moment that haven't gone to court yet
0: There are some out there, although um, again they're being delayed so we're not very clear on the detail and I think the latest findings over the weekend that in fact Monsanto is uh, burying the evidence uh, against the Roundup herbicide is going to make people very angry and that uh, some of the cases there will start to get rolling as well. I think this is a worldwide thing because um, many farmers in particular in Australia have been exposed and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a disease, a farmer's disease in Australia. So I think that um, there may be some cases here too and some of the class action lawyers are looking around for um, the victims of this exposure to run cases here as well.
1: Can you talk a bit more about that doctored research and what they did?
0: Well, for instance, um, they would write so-called scientific papers and then give it to um, leading scientists to put their name on and get it published. Of course, the scientists are now saying we agreed with what Monsanto wrote and uh, there was nothing wrong with what we did, even though we were paid for the exercise. But I think that uh, that just shows how uh, lacking in in independence these uh, so-called research trials were and how the reports and papers and letters to the editor of the scientific journals really were tied in so intimately with uh, Monsanto's corporate agenda. Basically, to sell its Roundup herbicide and also, of course, to sell the seeds of genetically manipulated crops that would withstand being sprayed with the herbicide as well. So, it's meant a very, particularly in North America, a huge increase, thousands of percent increase in the use of Roundup in the last, since 1996, that's slightly over 20 years, has increased enormously. It's been an exponential increase. And the amount of that chemical sprayed, and this is why now we're seeing a whole raft of people suffering the consequences.
1: Not just humans suffering the consequences, it goes right through nature.
0: Yes, some recent research shows that there are impacts on um, wildlife and other organisms in the ecology, particularly in waterways. For instance, some, some studies in bees now suggest that glyphosate, which is the active ingredient in Roundup herbicide, may affect the learning and increase the time that it takes for a bee to find a hive. So this really has long-term consequences for colony health. And we've seen colony collapse disorder, where um, bees have not been able to find their way back to their hives and have been dying. So that's been a very real mystery. A number of different mechanisms have been suggested, like the varroa mite, for instance. But it's possible that uh, Roundup herbicide is also implicated in this quite serious ecological impact because, of course, bees are very involved in the pollination of food crops for human and animal consumption. And without the bees, uh, there would be no pollination and no harvest. We need to clean up our act and make sure that um, those... uh, organisms in the environment like bees mosquitoes for instance are cared for also of course um, supply food for aquatic organisms themselves so uh, it's a complicated picture but um, it's becoming clearer that Roundup herbicide does have an impact there and it's something that we need to pay attention to as well not just looking at animal and human health.
1: Have you done any monitoring at all Bob about the the media response to these cases in the little, last little while, particularly the, the um, maybe the, the farming media?
0: We do um, scan the media, uh, particularly the rural media, every week and do a clippings mail out. Yeah, most of the coverage uh, about both uh, herbicides, agricultural chemicals in general, genetic man- genetic manipulation technologies too, are very positive and that of course is because of the advertising dollar. When you look in the rural papers, you see that um, a lot of the advertising there is from companies promoting uh, their chemicals and seed. I guess the people who pay the piper call the tune, and so you get these very upbeat stories. Uh, sometimes we'll get a little note at the end in the last sentence or two saying, oh yes, but there are these other concerns. But on the whole, you'd have to say that the... Uh, Rural media around the world uh, is very positive about uh, the use of chemicals, about genetically manipulated crops, and it's only now that um, the cover of um, glyphosate and Roundup herbicide is starting to be blown that um, we're getting a little bit more of a, a say about these things. I guess farmers themselves must be pretty aware that things are going wrong, that they are being unnecessarily and unsafely exposed and uh, of course um, the older generation of farmers now are suffering the health impacts so the discussion is opening and we're optimistic that there will be more coverage we hope uh, for instance the weekly times this week did an interview on friday and we sent them quite a bit of material so let's look out on wednesday uh, whether the weekly times actually does run something about this
1: what are farmers going to use instead
0: I mean, traditionally, before the chemical aid, before it got going in the 1950s and 60s, um, farmers cultivated and um, regenerative farming practices, which are now being developed, are a good story as far as rural communities are concerned as well. They are looking at uh, non-chemical methods for um, for weed management and control. The Harrington Weed Destructor is a new bit of machinery that can be uh, hooked up to the back of a harvesting machine, which catches the seed from the weeds and crunches it up before it can fall into the soil and become a a further problem. So being proactive about managing weeds is a good way to go. As far as local councils are concerned, uh, weed steamers are being uh, now trialled in uh, around 40 councils within Australia. This is where um, high-pressure steam is applied to weeds instead of chemicals. It seems to be effective. It's a bit more time-consuming and it costs a bit more, so councils are being quite resistant at the moment. But I think once they realise that they're also exposed legally as a result of spraying uh, Roundup uh, on street sides, in kids' playgrounds, in parks and so on, that they'll start to have a second think about, uh, particularly their legal liability as well. And we see companies doing this around the world and being advised in some cases that their insurance is not valid if they're sued for um, exposure to uh, herbicides that they've used on their uh, streets and uh, so on.
1: Is it instructive that a lot of our agricultural now has been taken up by corporate farming? Does that limit the ability of groups such as yours to influence?
0: I don't think it's that different, to be honest. Of course, these farms are... Um, are creating much bigger aggregations of land. So now you've got managers in place basically managing that land uh, to produce profits and, in some cases, uh, particular crops for export. For instance, um, China's investment in uh, Australian land for the production of crops that it, it needs to make sure that its population can be fed and how uh, and, and clothed. For instance, the Covey Station has been involved. Because it's so huge, it's got a dam which is something like the size of Sydney Harbour uh, in order to water its crops. But that strategy is now under big question and coming unravelled as well with the uh, huge fish kills on the Murray-Darling Basin. Essentially that river system being turned into a a little puddle, uh, if not a drain, and the people along the uh, river uh, who depend on that water as well for their town supply and the whole state of South Australia, which depends on it for water supplies as well, are starting to get up in arms. So the Murray-Darling Basin Plan will ha- have now, I think, to be rene- renegotiated because um, that water is scarce. We're a very dry continent, and I don't think any longer that uh, people should assume that the uh, cotton industry can simply take as much as it needs or wants to grow a crop which is very, very thirsty indeed. So insofar as places like Cubby Station, which are corporate-owned, there will be resistance to changing the rules, but I think it's inevitable now, uh, and that the the outrage about the huge ecological dysfunction, the killing of all those um, fish and the polluting of the rivers so that people can't use the water, uh, is um, a political conundrum that's going to have to be resolved the sooner the better. You know, of course now Cubby Station and the other cotton growers are almost 100% genetically manipulated. Bolgard 3 cotton, it tolerates even more longer and higher doses of of Roundup being sprayed on them, and that is part of the picture in the Murray Darling, that water pollution is killing the the fish. The river's becoming polluted to the point where um, it's not possible for for life to, to exist there. Of course, Monsanto, when it developed the Bollgard crops, promised other things as well. And farmers really accepted Roundup tolerance and the BT insect toxins that will manage some insects by promising things like drought and salt tolerance, nitrogen fixation. Higher yields were a particular thing, of course, that they promised. None of these promises, these new traits in cotton, were delivered. The cotton industries. Days in Australia may be numbered. We're going to need to see some different management systems for crops as well. Going to need to find particularly um, indigenous crops that demand less water, can still be used as forage for animals, for instance, and not affect the environment in the way that cotton, uh, rice, and other high demand, water demand crops are really erecting our waterways and our land.
1: Just wondering, Bob, when it was that these two crops were decided, it was decided that these two crops would be great for for Australia and we we could, you know, service them, we could have given plenty of water, there'd be no problems at all. Where did all that come from?
0: Well, it it got its beginnings in the 1970s, uh, particularly in the cotton industry, of course. It was American farmers who had been growing cotton in the USA that came and set up the cotton industry here. They and their descendants are really still quite dominant in that industry. It's a small industry but a very valuable one. The practices that they've used have really depended now lately on the development of the genetically manipulated crops because at the point in the 1990s when the new GM crops came in and they started to be able to spray Roundup more liberally and they also had the trait which would to some extent manage insect predation on cotton crops, they had the idea that uh, genetic manipulation would be the answer. But, of course, when you expose insects and weeds to selection pressure by putting toxins into the environment, those organisms adapt. And that's why we're now on Bolgard 3, for instance. Ingard, Bolgard 1, and Bolgard 2 all went because they wouldn't any longer control Uh, weeds with the use of Roundup, now we're on to the third iteration of of those GM crops. Soon enough that will also run out of steam. Maybe it's time to think about just saying no to cotton in Australia and uh, not relying on this uh, genetic manipulation treadmill that they've been using so far.
1: And where does this new CRISPR technique come into it all?
0: That's a new technique that's been developed, so-called gene editing, developed in the last five years. Those who are techno-optimists and enthusiasts for, um, for new techniques say that, well, it's, it's different, it's new, it's going to allow us to do things more accurately, more precisely, more cheaply than we did with the old genetic manipulation techniques that were developed in the 1980s. There's a great hue and cry about deregulation at the moment, about just let's get on with it, this is the most fantastic thing that's ever been heard of since sliced bread but unfortunately that too is coming unraveled as new evidence emerges that the CRISPR techniques are likely to have similar flaws to their predecessors, they have off-target impacts, really uh, we need to wait and see just what will happen with those. They're being used in laboratories around the world but there are only one or two so far in the USA unregulated products such as a new potato for instance and the developer of that potato has now recanted and said that he thinks those potatoes may have impacts on the environment and public health. It's not cut and dried where CRISPR is going to go but it is the buzzword of the moment. It's wait and see what the companies try to put into our food supply in the next two to five years I would say. Unfortunately As I mentioned deregulation is also a part of the scene and so we've got our federal regulator, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator telling us that uh, really there's no need to regulate a whole class of these techniques. We can change the rules, we don't need to regulate and those crops and foods can just go out there really without any thorough examination by a government authority at all. Uh, we're having that argument with the government at the moment and it remains to be seen who wins that argument
4: and
1: it all comes down or a lot of it comes down bob to what we put in our mouths and why we put food into our mouths that has got pesticides herbicides on it or has been on it why aren't we organic
0: well um of course organic foods are the fastest growing segment of the Australian food supply and in other countries also Europe there's huge organic uptake and it is because people are aware that chemical residues are in our food supply, in our hair and urine samples tested in Europe and North America in particular. We should be paying attention to our diet and the evidence of the exposure of uh, children and adults and things like the uh, cases on non-Hodgkin's lymphoma are highlighting that uh, we can't much longer continue to willy-nilly spray the environment with chemicals that are toxic they're toxic not only to plants to control weeds or insects to control those few insects that predate on our food crops uh, but they're also toxic to us to our children to our companion animals and it's about time that they were taken out of our production systems but of course that's going to depend a lot on the redirection of our scarce research and development resources into new avenues so that we can actually get those regenerative systems of agriculture up and running. Oil is running out, phosphates are running out, other essential inputs to industrial agriculture are scarce and running out. Sometime soon, industrial agriculture is going to begin to collapse, and we need to get new production systems up and running as quickly as possible. It needs a reorientation of the research and development budgets of people like the Grains Research and Development Corporation, of CSIRO and others, to start to refocus on how are we going to be sustainable into the future and not just use Australian agriculture as a a mining industry to produce commodities uh, without value-adding that we export to the world in order to get um, income to buy the, um, the, the other technologies that Australians want. We need a reorientation to uh, make a priority of feeding Australians healthy food to keep the population in good order and into the future for our kids and grandkids. These are essential changes that we need to see and we're pushing on with trying to get our governments to put their research and development resources in different directions and we're encouraging others to do the same.
1: And so important to educate the, the young generation coming on. Well, yes, and
0: uh, that's why uh, Australia needs um, some new education materials in its schools. Gene Ethics is just now beginning a new education program. We're looking for um, community support for that. We're working with the Australian Teachers of Media, uh, an organisation that's been going almost as long as us, 30 years, uh, here in Melbourne. Of course, moving on from the sort of kits that we used to produce, where we would actually send stuff to schools in hard copy and looking for audio-visual material to present online for teachers and students to think about the moral, the ethical, the public health issues that are sort of buried at the moment in the techno-optimism that's being presented to them by, by other groups, uh, the industry, establishment science are out there in schools saying gee whiz, CRISPR, it's going to be the greatest, it's going to Feed, house, and clothe the world. We just need to say, hang on a minute, what are the real implications for our way of life, for our community, and for other values that we hold, like good public health, uh, before we go charging forward in this?
1: And that's Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. If you'd like to help with the fundraising for their latest project, get onto their Facebook page. It's Gene Ethics Network. Marxism 2019 is Australia's biggest socialist conference, taking place this Easter long weekend from April the 18th to the 21st in Melbourne. Marxism 2019 features international and local guest speakers, including award-winning author and activist Baruz Bouchani. Join over 1,000 activists for crucial discussions on how to resist the rise of the right and rebuild the left. With more than 100 sessions, tickets start at just $35 and are available at marxismconference.org. A 3CR supporter. Talking now about hypocrisy and hand-wringing. I begin with events in the past month or so concerning a particularly obnoxious individual from the UK, Milo Yiannopoulos, and his application for a visa. It was rejected, which resulted in right-wing commentators hitting the roof. Government relented. Yes, he could come and spread his particular brand of fascism. And then, lo and behold, deaths in Christchurch and his band. I'm joined by Debbie Brennan from PUSH educating and organising to build a united front. Debbie, can you talk about what I would argue is the hypocrisy of both the Liberals and the Labor parties about the far right? We've had a whole succession of far right commentators in recent years. And within a week of Christchurch, Morrison on again about letting rapists and murderers in through the back door, of Nauru to Australia
4: I agree and that's actually bringing together a lot of things there because that hypocrisy is showing like what the last at least 20 years have been like the build-up because as we probably remember it's almost 20 years ago that the war so-called war on terror was declared and of course that's when Muslims being the the big target as being just the big threat, the big problem that we're all supposed to be terrified of. That's been the green light, as we know, for some pretty barbaric policies, our refugee policy being an obvious one. And just the scapegoating of Muslims, which has extended into many, many immigrant communities, such as the African community, This whole visa issue that you're raising, it's so telling that the Australian government, the New Zealand government, would be no different, or the United States and around the world. Governments are closing their borders, or they have closed their borders, not allowing so many people to be coming in, and certainly refugees, and and demonizing them as being terrorists. So that's going on but in the meantime australia has had this parade of far-right you know fascist connected visitors milo yiannopoulos being one of them they're free to come in and of course their whole objective in coming is to be building a global far-right movement but this toing and throwing over a visa for Milo Yiannopoulos, I'm thinking that it's probably to do with, of course they want Milo Yiannopoulos to come in, no problem with that whatsoever, if the government had their way. But I think that pressure that's been building from below, that is the resistance to the growth of a far right, is something that, in this case, the Morrison government has had to respond to. While it's had to respond to it by this time not allowing Milo in, we wouldn't be the least bit surprised if Milo is okay to come in sometime in the future or somebody of his ilk. Frankly, the position that a lot of us have who have been fighting the far-right and fascists all this time is that the borders should be open to those who want to come in and most certainly refugees they should be open at the same time we should never appeal to the government to use its repressive powers to stop people from getting visas even if they're people like milo simply because we know that those repressive powers that control borders and control visas are there to be used against the likes of refugees and the likes of us, that is, those who are resisting the far-right and the fascists, but also those of us who are resisting government policies on many fronts. Yeah, I think you've you've raised a contradictory situation that's looking pretty obvious right now. And all this talk
1: about, oh, well, maybe this Keller from Australia who went to New Zealand and apparently everyone else, he slipped under the radar. Well, has there ever been a radar for the far right? When you've got all these far right activists coming into Australia,
4: where's the radar? Yes, I think that's a good question. As you say, there is not a radar, particularly when we also think about the fact that we've got far right and downright you know, the odd fascist in our own parliamentary system, the fascist I'm thinking of, um, Fraser Anning, but, uh, but the far right, whether it be Hanson or Corey Bernardi or George Christensen or whoever.
1: And it's all the sleepers, too, that you don't hear about. I-
4: exactly, exactly. So they're there in our parliament. The far right has an open field. And of course, even when we look at, our own top government office holders, Dutton or Morrison, for example, they're about as right as you can get, and what they are actually saying and doing is everything that we're talking about. So, yes, again, the hypocrisy. It's interesting that these likes are using that terminology of terrorism and, and a terrorist and calling the guy who just did that horrible atrocity a terrorist, which, of course, he is, but for them to actually characterize him that way and and now say that they've they're going to be watching or they are watching the far right, I think there's something else we need to say to that, because both Dutton and Shorten, Bill Shorten, have come out to say, That we've got to stomp on this extremism from both the right and the left well we know what this means i think that is act that's very ominous thing to hear because we know that they're not so worried about the far right the far right is about maintaining a status quo they're worried about the left and i think that That's not hard for us to see when we look back on the last five years of the anti-fascist, anti-far-right organizing, when the police have um, uh, pepper-sprayed us and kettled, i.e. surrounded and isolated us at protests to protect the fascists. And that is no exaggeration.
1: And also the fact that the mainstream or corporate media plays up to these people like Blair Cottrell interviews him follows them around know exactly what they're doing
4: yes exactly and um, the mainstream media not only give them that platform any of us trying to get a platform on the mainstream media we either get the little the little quick two words or nothing at all so the platform clearly The favorite platform is for the far right and the open fascists like Claire Cottrell. But it's also all that dog whistling, you know, the dog whistling that comes from successive governments, whether they be coalition or labor, especially over the last 20 years and, and recently, coming from government, coming from police, and, of course, coming from the media. We're just getting those dog whistles all over the place.
1: And when you see the treatment of the the very slightly built 17-year-old last week Uh. who had the audacity to put an egg on Anning's head, Uh. the reaction not only of him, Uh. great hulk of a man, to bash the kid in the head, but all those young fellows who just jumped on him and choked him, kicked him, always on the ground.
4: Yes, yes.
1: What Uh were they doing there?
4: Yes, what were they doing there and we saw the footage of assault, I mean assault against the 17 year old and I mean that was very clear. Um, Somehow there's not an outrage coming from the quarters we've been talking about about that assault when he throws an egg at somebody.
1: And I dare say that he's too frightened to lay charges.
4: Possibly, I don't quite know what's, um, what's happening there.
1: The role of the, the mainstream media, moreover, and also the police in protecting the far right, can you talk a bit more about that, particularly the police? You've just alluded to it a little bit, but they're, in a sense, facilitating their rise.
4: Yes, they are. I think that if we put the police actions at any kind of, you know, face-off between fascists and anti-fascists. And, of course, those police actions are the pepper spraying, the arrests, the kettling of the anti-fascist side. And this is a global thing going on. It's not just Victoria. You hear the same story over and over again across the world. When you put that together with law and order you know calls from the police and from government and legislation such as the anti-masking laws that um were put through i think in late 2017 and those are just some examples and also the build-up of police powers and police weaponry we're seeing the state and we know it's the capitalist state preparing itself Against resistance, because that 's what it 's all aimed at the fact that the masking laws and the and the move on laws that have been in for a bit longer, but the the masking laws were enfor- they came in and were enforced at the end of two thousand and seventeen at a very intense time of counter demonstrations against the far right and against fascists, and the fact that the first person to be arrested for masking up was an anti-fascist. I, I think that's giving us a, a pretty clear picture of the forces that are building up. I think this goes back to something that we were talking about before, which is why, why is the government and police and so on lenient on the far right and, in fact, not just lenient, but actually encouraging and enabling the far right. Why are they doing that? It's because the far right is about keeping, again, the status quo of power in place. What they're afraid of is the buildup of resistance, whether it be the 100,000 that come out on January 26 on Invasion Day to oppose that history and Australia Day or whether it be the unions that have mobilized in over a hundred and twenty thousand in numbers you know whenever we have the chance to organize in the streets we do and we have lots to be organizing around I think that's the fear
1: and also Debbie the increasing and increasing militarization of the police. Yes. I think we all know who that's aimed at.
4: Yes, I I think we do. And, again, that's not speculation at all because any of us who were at St. Kilda, for example, on January 25th, we saw that in action and we saw where that can lead when it's put into full force because at St. Kilda... We had just police in overkill, not only in their numbers, mind you, they've been in overkill in their numbers for quite some time, but they even had their patrol boat, they had their attack dogs, the usual mounted police, but they had their new weaponry there as well. It was at St. Kilda that once again... It was a worrying time there for us on the anti-fascist side because the police kettled us. They gave the fascists full capacity to roam around. The fascists actually did attack a couple of times. So, yes, going back to the militarization of the police, that is something that is telling us a lot.
1: And also it appears that the... Social media or sections of the social media are uh, fostering the far right?
4: Yes, I guess you're probably referring to specific platforms where the far right and fascists are recruiting from. And of course, what happened when the Christchurch uh, shooting occurred, the fact that that footage was able to. Be seen for quite some time being giving that fascist a platform in various different ways. Social media is a, a way of organizing, but I guess what needs to be said is it also gives us who are fighting the far right and the fascist platforms too. I personally certainly wouldn't want to be seeing a crackdown on social media, which the Morrison government is flagging
1: can I just take you to France for a moment what are your opinions on the long-going campaign of of activism in France
4: I think it's the capacity the capacity of the people of France to be able to have those massive uh, mobilizations in terms of the yellow that's great and that that's that's a well, that's a history that goes way back to, to the revolution, um, the French Revolution. In terms of the yellow jackets and, um, you know, what's happening recently is it seems a bit of a mixed bag what that is about, and I think that is something still to, to be watching. Even so, I know that the French police have been militarized for some time whatever form of protest takes place there or here different as they are um, I think something that is common is that the, um, the state is there to jump on it when it feels it has to. Finally Debbie
1: how have you seen the, the reaction to the killings in Christchurch?
4: There have been different reactions depending on what side of the power picture we talk about. So, for example, we find the reaction from, if we just look at the New Zealand government and the New Zealand police, you have the police saying to Muslims to stay home and don't go to your mosques. When I heard that, I thought, oh, yeah, women are told that every time there's an act of femicide coming from police that those of us whoever we are who are targeted at any particular time are supposed to go away and hide but the ardern government also came out with their pronouncement of gun control which is frankly missing the point the point is that that shooter did what he did because he pretty much pulled the trigger for the dog whistling and the persecution of Muslims that's been going on for close to 20 years. But that reaction from the state is one reaction. And then, of course, we've heard the similar kind of tears coming from the Australian government. But the other response that um, I think is very important is from those of us on the ground. And that shooting took place the day before global rallies, coordinated global rallies against the far right and fascists. Those rallies had been planned months before, but those rallies were happening all across Europe, in the U.K., in New York, in Washington, D.C., and Melbourne. I mean, just millions were out. Well, many thousands were out. It's hard to tell the numbers. But massive, massive rallies, people coming out to confront the fascist and the far-right threat, which is a global threat. The fact that those rallies happened to occur the day after the shootings those shootings gave those rallies even more of a uh, of a strength and the solidarity you know expressed to muslims everywhere and it it that shooting demonstrated the very thing the very reason for those rallies that what we're facing is a threat And it's a lethal threat. And sadly, Christchurch proved that. So, yes, there are responses. There's strong, I I think the responses in both ends, uh, uh, on both sides, being as strong as they are, are indicating that we are reaching a a, a point like a a high noon possibly, whenever that high noon is going to come. But there is a build-up. That actually brings me just to a point that comes out of that, that the resistance on the ground is building, as we are saying, and many of us are a part of. But we need to harness that resistance, and that resistance really needs to be harnessed into a united front. And a united front, if we're talking about fascism in the far right, A united front where whatever organizations or groups we are a part of, we may have our own programs, our own political perspectives, but we come together around principles of agreement in how we're going to fight and stop and defeat the fascists and the far right. That united front is needed now more than ever. It's got to be open. It's got to be democratic. It's got to be accountable to be able to organize disciplined actions to defeat this threat. And what's going to be important in these united fronts are the two chief targets of fascism. And those two chief targets are unions and the left. And um, the unions and the left are going to be critical in a united front, but we do need to seriously be building that. And already the wheels are in motion of a united front here in Melbourne, and that's push, organizing, educating and organizing to build a united front. That's the name. It's already in place and evolving And it's something that people and organisations should really be joining in on to make this big.
1: And many thanks to Debbie Brennan. And for this last segment of Tuesday Home Time, I'm speaking with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. We've spoken many times over the years, Nick, about the nuclear tests in the Pacific, and it's come a time now when a number of those activists from those years are passing on themselves.
5: Yeah, it's been really tragic over the last three years that uh, really a whole generation of anti-nuclear campaigners, people who were really instrumental in raising uh, the issue of nuclear testing, both the campaign against testing while it was going on between... 1946 and 1996, more than 310 nuclear tests across the region, but also more importantly people who kept campaigning for the rights of nuclear survivors. Many people across Australia, Marshall Islands, uh, Kiribati, French Polynesia and other sites were affected by health and environmental impacts of uh, the nuclear testing particularly the the hazards of radioactive isotopes, radioactive contamination. And there's a generation of people who, since the end of testing in '96, have been campaigning for the rights of those people affected. People who've been, as trade unionists, as political leaders, as church leaders, really involved in calling for compensation, reparations, medical support for people whose health has been affected by nuclear testing. And that's been a a pattern across the region, and sadly that generation, um, um, some of whom worked on the nuclear test sites themselves, are coming to an end, and uh, many have died in recent years.
1: How successful have they been in winning those rights?
5: Slowly, slowly, they've been quite successful, but the battle's never over. In both the Marshall Islands, in Australia, and in French Polynesia, there are systems that have been created for compensation for people whose health is affected. In all three cases, however, the original creation of the scheme was insufficient to meet the range of health and environmental impacts and placed enormous burden on nuclear survivors, whether they be civilian or military, to prove that their health problems, their cancers, their leukaemia, whatever, was caused by the nuclear testing. So in French Polynesia, for example, for many years the French government denied that their 30 years of nuclear testing between 66 and 96 caused health problems. Indeed, just last year, um, President um, Edward Fritch of French Polynesia, who'd been a right-wing uh, political leader for many, many years, uh, lieutenant to uh, long-serving President Gaston Floss during the nuclear period, he admitted in, in the territorial assembly that he lied about how safe the tests were. That he'd openly lied about the the lack of health. Challenges and so on. And for the nuclear campaigners, particularly in a group called Mururoa Etato, Mururoa Anas, um, who'd been campaigning for compensation, they were not surprisingly angry that, that they'd known for a long time that there were health effects. And sadly, we've seen, uh, three key leaders of Mururoa Etato die in the last three years. The French have finally admitted that there were health impacts. They've set up a compensation scheme, but there's still a battle to change the onus of proof. Really, the the French state should have the responsibility to prove that someone's cancer was not caused by their service on Mururoa on Fangatov atolls, on the nuclear test sites. Instead the onus is for the worker who worked on the test site to prove that their cancer was caused by their service there and it's really difficult because you can get lung cancer from smoking you can get lung cancer from all sorts of sources so to actually prove that it was caused by your exposure to radiation Um, but we know that there were people given dirty difficult dangerous jobs on the test sites um some years ago i interviewed a guy uh, Raymond whose job was uh, as a diver scuba diver to dive into Mururawa Lagoon after underground tests were held, um, they used to drill a hole in the basalt base of Mururoa Atoll in the lagoon, uh, put the bomb at the bottom, plug it up with concrete, and then explode it. The idea that the the radioactive isotopes would be fused into the basalt rock um, of the base of the atoll uh, at massive heat, you know, caused by a nuclear explosion. But they sent Raymond to dive into the lagoon to take water samples after basically to see whether the concrete plug had leaked or whether radioactive isotopes like tritium were leaking into the marine environment from cracks in the rock. And we know today, of course, that there were enormous fissures and cracks in Motoroa Atoll, something that the environment movement said for 40 years but has been denied successively by the French and the local government for, for decades. You know, We know through the atomic, International Atomic Energy Agency, which is no radical body, Uh, that there's at least five kilograms of plutonium scattered in tiny particles through the sediments of Mururoa Lagoon. So Raymond's job, who was to dive into the lagoon to take samples, obviously caused him terrible health problems. He died, sadly, some years ago. And when I interviewed him, he was, you know, saying, it's pretty clear that I was at risk. It was clear that I was given the shit job that they wouldn't give to a Frenchman. Why won't they take responsibility for looking after me now that I'm sick? And um, there were three great tr- champions who did campaign for the rights of the Mururoa and Whangatofa workers. A church leader named John Doom, a French researcher named Bruno Barrio, and a Maui-Polynesian P- trade unionist, uh, Roland Oldham. Um, those three men co-founded Mururoa Etato in 2001 um, and spent uh, nearly two decades campaigning for competition for the thousands of workers um, who'd staffed the test sites over that 30-year period.
1: Tell the story of John Doon.
5: John was an amazing man. John was a very active member of the Protestant Church, uh, which is the largest denomination in French Polynesia. He was a church deacon, fairly learned man, and in the 1960s he was chosen then to be the interpreter between uh, the Tahitians and the French in 1966, July 1966, when the first nuclear test was conducted by France. France began its nuclear testing program in the Sahara Desert, in its colony Algeria, but after the Algerian War, they continued underground testing in in the Sahara Desert, but began building the Mururoa base in the South Pacific. First test was the 2nd of July, 1966. John was present, acting as an interpreter, and... What he saw on that day transformed his life. He realised that this was a terrible, terrible thing the development of nuclear weapons that um, French Polynesia should have nothing to do with French plans for building a nuclear arsenal and he spent the rest of his life uh, the next uh, five decades campaigning against nuclear weapons. And he became a very influential figure in ecumenical circles in the Pacific. He's a charismatic, very warm, human, humorous figure. He went to work for the Pacific Conference of Churches, which is the main body-linking mainline churches across the Pacific, ended up with the World Council of Churches uh, in Geneva, uh, representing the Pacific in the global assembly, and was really a driving force in getting the global church community to find out about nuclear testing in the Pacific and particularly in French Polynesia and to join the campaign about this. There's a wonderful uh, article just been written by Christine Weir in the, the Journal of Pacific History looking at the, the way in which the World Council of Churches, this global body, was drawn into the campaign to support nuclear survivors um, and, and to get churches all around the world, to get the ecumenical movement all around the world to play a role in campaigning, firstly to stop French nuclear testing and then to work with nuclear survivors. And John Doom was a really crucial figure in that. Bruno, his colleague, was a brain box. Bruno worked with a disarmament organisation in um, uh, in France, uh, in Lyon, a uh, former Catholic priest. He'd worked in Africa. You know, was really committed to social justice and he spent a lot of time working with the military personnel, French military personnel who'd staffed the test sites uh, wrote several books and realized that the French military were being looked after by military hospitals, but all the Polynesian workers, the Maui workers who'd staffed the test sites, truck drivers, customs officers, laborers, all sorts of people, scuba divers uh, and others, um, were not getting that same care. So Bruno came to French Polynesia and devoted the rest of his life to working with uh, uh, the nuclear survivors. And the third of the Three Amigos was Roland Oldham, um, trade union activist, a man of many features. Uh, he's a blues guitarist. He plays in a band called Atomic Blues. Um, he was uh, very active in a whole range of social justice campaigns, but he was chosen as president of Mordorai Tato uh, when it was founded in 2001 and remained that until his death uh, just uh, two weeks ago from cancer. And Roland uh, was very different to John, a quite irreligious uh Roland and I were at a church service in um, 2000 in in Tahiti and he was translating from Tahitian to French and I was translating from French to English for an international audience and we could see some mutterings and, and laughter from the audience because two rather irreligious types translating biblical parables the translation was mangled by the time it went from Tahitian to French and French to English and afterwards the pastor came out and said some people he said looking at Roland need to go to church more often <laughs> so Roland was working alongside church activists to campaign for workers rights as a trade union activist he continued to since John's death in christmas eve 2016 Bruno's death uh, in uh, march last year and now tragically Roland's death this year um that generation of people who were absolutely central to keeping this issue alive when people think, oh, the nuclear era is over. Um, well, we know it's not. Donald Trump and Kim Jong Un are reminding us that the, the nuclear issue is, is still with us. Um, ICANN, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons shows that, that it's still with us. And indeed, Roland traveled from Tahiti to New York in 2017 to campaign and lobby with the team from Melbourne, um, from ICANN, to include in the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons a section on the rights of nuclear survivors. And the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons is unique and, and indeed sets a precedent for the future that, unlike every other nuclear disarmament treaty that's ever been signed before, there's a specific section on the rights of nuclear survivors and countries that sign on to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons have obligations as a state party to support and assist nuclear survivors in terms of their health, in terms of their compensation and so on. That's, as I say, unprecedented in any disarmament treaty, and it was the work of people like Roland, like ICANN activists, indeed indigenous activists from Australia, Karina Lester, were party to that, um, uh, making this a really important part of the treaty not only cleaning up the environmental impacts of nuclear testing, but also addressing the rights and the, the, uh, the health of people who participated in the testing program.
1: Would you say that the rights or lack of rights for the people resulting from the French and the US tests were any different to the French?
5: Well, the, the situation is that the... The Americans have a very litigious tradition and so they've set up a nuclear claims tribunal in the Marshall Islands um, and through the court system a whole series of judgments have been brought down uh, recognising health and environmental impacts. Um, The nuclear claims tribunal in the Marshall Islands has issued rulings amounting to $2.6 billion for compensation. The problem is however that um, in the Marshalls the American government has refused to provide the necessary money to pay all the people whose property was damaged, whose lives were affected, whose health was affected. Once again, the same story. There were a number of campaigners in the Marshall Islands, a guy called Bill Graham, an American uh, who was the public advocate for the Nuclear Claims Tribunal, who kept working after the, the tribunal brought down its rulings many years ago uh, to see that they were impacted, and um, relying a lot on the testimony of uh, nuclear survivors, who were affected by there. The first-hand testimony is so vivid um, and it's a really important part of the process that people who were there can speak. Some years ago, I interviewed um, a woman named Lemion Arbon. Mrs. Arbon was a young girl, 14 years old, in um, uh, the island of Rongelap. Uh, It's one of the northern islands in the Marshall Islands. And on the 1st of March, 1954, a nuclear test... Called Bravo, codenamed Bravo, exploded into the sky. It was the largest nuclear test ever conducted by the uh, uh, the United States. It was 15 megaton nuclear test. That's the equivalent of 15 million tons of TNT. Now the bomb that destroyed Hiroshima was 15 kilotons, 15,000 15,000 tons of TNT, roughly, and um, this was 15 million. So you can imagine the enormity of the blast and the radioactive isotope spread across the northern atolls. I interviewed Lemieux and uh, another woman, Rin- Rinok Ricklon, both young girls at the time, and they talked about like snow falling from the sky, and they thought it was soap, and they rubbed it in their hair. They lost their hair within days from radiation uh, poisoning. Um, many people from the northern atolls died in subsequent years, but Lemieux... Um, it was an ongoing campaigner into her old age. Uh, she and uh, uh, Mrs Ricklon were, were both forthright campaigners, spoke many times about how it had affected their health, their reproductive health, uh, and were very involved in campaigning for reparations and clean-up of the atolls, not just uh, funding to help with their own health problems, but also the clean up their atoll so they could go home because um, she was one of the people evacuated by the Rainbow Warrior. Um, the ship that was later blown up by French terrorists in Auckland Harbour. They were removed from their home island because of the radiation hazards, isotopes like cesium 137 coming into the coconuts, uh, coming into the food crops, um, affecting the fish and so on. And so uh, Mrs Arbonne lived in exile for her pretty much her whole life. And sadly she died in February last year after a long period campaigning for uh, the rights of people there. In Australia, too, uh, the British have refused seriously to address questions of reparations and compensation. And uh, the great champion for Indigenous people in Australia was Yami Lester, once again, who passed away in the last couple of years. Um, um, Yami Lester, who was effectively blinded by the Totem One test, 1953 British atomic test at uh, Emy Field. And um, uh, he was famous for raising the issue of the, the black cloud the, the um, contamination, uh, the dust and so on and uh, lived with blindness for most of his life uh, uh, which he attributed to the the EMU testing.
1: You've also worked with people from Fiji.
5: The same issue applies everywhere. Um, uh, the British, having finished their atomic testing in Australia continued hydrogen bomb testing the testing of thermonuclear weapons larger more powerful weapons in uh, What's today Kiribati on Christmas Island and uh, uh, Malden Island in the uh, the Line Islands, which is the the easternmost part of what's today the Republic of Kiribati. The uh, Fijian military personnel, British military personnel who were deployed to uh, Christmas Island, uh, suffered many of the health consequences that um, other people in nuclear testing areas have: short-term radiation exposure longer-term problems related to ingestion or uh, inhalation of uh, uh, radioactive particles, cancers, leukemias, and uh, and so on. And there's uh, been a very active campaign. The British government, however, unlike the Americans and the French at least, refuses to accept the rights of um, former nuclear personnel, military or civilian. Um, There's no compensation scheme established by the British government. They've paid a certain amount of money into an aged veterans fund, but that's open to, um, all veterans, not just those, uh, you know, involved in nuclear programs. When, um, Prince Harry, the Duke of Sussex and his bride, uh, toured the Pacific last year, uh, they traveled to Fiji, um, he unveiled a, uh, uh, a statue for a Fijian who'd served in the British SAS in, uh, Oman, uh, um, you know, involved in British counterinsurgency operations in the former British colonies in the Yemen, but uh, there's silence from the, the Duke of Sussex, who's famously created the Invictus Games. He was here for the Invictus Games in Australia. You know, that, that are there to, to support injured service personnel, but there's no mention from Prince Harry or his entourage about the Fijians who'd served the British Empire with the Christmas Island nuclear testing, because it was a peacetime operation. They were not due with the same sort of support that people who'd served in British counterinsurgency operations in Malaya and and other places. Uh, um, So he honours those that served the British Empire in wartime, but refused to support the British veterans in peacetime. And that's the sort of scandal that, that continues to this day and sees men... In their 80s, early 80s, still calling for reparations, for compensation, for recognition.
1: Talk more about the next generation coming on who are supporting and keeping this issue alive.
5: And that's the that's the, the thing that's that's so important and so encouraging. You know, nuclear testing ended in 1996. The last French test began in 1946. So there was 50 years of nuclear testing across the Pacific, in Australia, in Kiribati, in Johnston Atoll, in French Polynesia, in the Marshall Islands. And that generation who were there during that period in the 20th century are now getting old and passing on. But a younger generation have picked up the torch. We mentioned Yami Lester, his daughter Karina, active Indigenous activists from uh, South Australia travelled to New York to join in the campaigning alongside Roland Oldham from French Polynesia to strengthen the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and Karina was uh, a really crucial uh, player in, in bringing forward the issue of the rights of Indigenous peoples in the nuclear period because most nuclear weapons testing was done on the land or the waters of Indigenous peoples um, and uh, Karina took a statement signed from people across Oceania, from Australia, New Zealand, uh, the Pacific Islands, to those global negotiations um, that created the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. And she spoke at the plenary at the United Nations, calling for recognition of indigenous peoples and reparations, compensation, assistance to nuclear survivors. And as I mentioned, that, that now is a, a section of the treaty a number of countries have signed, um, the treaty. Uh, many have ratified. Palau has ratified. New Zealand signed and ratified. Um, uh, many of our neighbours, um, uh, Fiji has signed it. Uh, um, you know, Kiribati has signed it. Tuvalu, uh, you know, Indonesia, Thailand, Malaysia. Guess which country hasn't signed it? Aotearoa, New Zealand has both signed and ratified the treaty. Our government has refused to participate in the negotiations, refused to sign it. Um, let's see what Billy Shorten and his gang will do um, on this important question.
1: And who are the younger generation in the Pacific?
5: Well, Karina's, you know, matched by people across the region uh, in the Marshall Islands. Um, uh, a new generation of young people have heard the tales from their parents, their grandparents about what it was like, are uh, living with the the consequences of very high cancer rates uh, in a society. Um, still know that the northern atolls are very badly polluted, that there are people who can't go back. Um, every year on the 1st of March, the anniversary of the Bravo nuclear test, the Marshall Islands government and churches and community hold a ceremony in Majuro, the capital, for people, particularly from Bikini, from Eniwetok, uh, from other places, who've been uh, uh, living for decades. And the young kids at Egypt, one of the islands where the Bikinians are, um, wear school t-shirts emblazoned with a nuclear mushroom cloud to remember, to remember. And so you have um, Kathy Gentnell uh, Kitchener, a well-known Marshallese performance poet, who's just done a wonderful piece. She did a poem called History Lesson, um, which is uh, worth looking at. It's on YouTube. Uh, if you just Google History Lesson and uh, Marshall Islands Nuclear, um, it comes up. It's a, a 10-minute performance um, that really tells the history of the nuclear testing. But just last year, she did a uh, another piece called Anointed. Once again, if you Google on YouTube, uh, Anointed, Cathy, uh, it'll come up. And she travelled with a young filmmaker to uh, Eniwitok, Atoll. Bikini is well known, but Eniwitok was the second site uh, where 67 American nuclear tests were held in the Marshall Islands. And on one of the islands in Eniwitok Atoll, Runit uh, there's a massive concrete dome, enormous, uh, spreads, you know, a huge, huge area and covers 73,000 cubic meters of nuclear contamination. Basically, after the tests, the Americans bulldozed a whole lot of contaminated materials, contaminated soil into a hole, into a crater left by one of the, the nuclear blasts that it vaporized, vaporized, uh, uh, uh one little islet. Um, then they just covered it in concrete. And um, as anyone who's looked at a footpath recently knows, concrete doesn't last that long. So this was done in the 1970s. Um, the concrete is cracking now and leaching radioactive materials into the marine environment.
1: Who's testing it?
5: Uh, well, no one. And that's the problem. The Americans have basically given up their responsibility for, for addressing these sorts of problems. I had the, the same experience. I travelled to Algeria in 2007. Uh, with a delegation uh, to meet with the people who were survivors of um, the French nuclear testing. And we went to a place called Inekere, which is a mountain range in the middle of the Sahara Desert. We flew south from uh, Algiers, the capital, and um, literally around the bottom of this mountain range, the French put up, uh, you know, hundreds, thousands of concrete posts and strung barbed wire around it. Um, to basically keep people off the mountain, because they conducted 13 underground tests by drilling tunnels into the side of the mountain, putting the bomb at the end, and then plugging it up with concrete, and blowing the bomb inside the mountain, once again with the idea of fusing the you know, radioactive explosion into the basalt base of these mountain range. The problem was in, 13, in four of the 13 tests, they blew a hole in the side of the mountain, and there were, you can see lava flows down the side of the mountain and those lava flows are contaminated with plutonium, which is a long-lasting radioactive isotope it has a half-life of 23,400 years so that means a, a piece of plutonium will decay over time um, and loses half its weight in 23,400 years, so it will decay over time and eventually disappear but, you know that's human, that's half the time that Aboriginal people have lived in Australia. So half of the plutonium will decay. Imagine, think of the longevity, the oldest civilisation in the world in Australia, the plutonium that spread across the desert at Maralinga.
1: What's been able to be found out about what happened in China, the former Soviet Union, Pakistan, India, Israel, the other nuclear We know powers.
5: more about some places than others. We don't know much about China. Um, Lop Nor in the area in, in uh, the west, um, the Uyghur area, as you'll know, the Chinese, the Han Chinese, are very sensitive about uh, Uyghur nationalism, Muslim nationalism in the west of the country, um, Xinjiang province, and the testing that was conducted at Lop Nor was in the west, and so there's very tight security there, and there's not a lot of information. There's a bit, but not a lot. A lot more about Kazakhstan. The Russians did uh, a lot of nuclear testing at a place called Semipalatinsk in uh, Kazakhstan, as well as some in the far east at Novaya Zemlya, um, the biggest nuclear test ever conducted by anyone. 58 megatons. 58 million tons of TNT equivalent. Bomber, uh, it was called uh, um, Joe 1, the Americans code named it after Joe Stalin. Uh, that was at Novaya Zemlya in the east but most of the tests were at Semipalatinsk. And since the breakup of the Soviet Union, Kazakhstan becoming an independent country uh, from uh, Russia, um, there's been a lot of research done in Kazakh uh, communities about the effects. Terrible, terrible health problems. Um, And uh, that area around Semipalatinsk, there's now quite a lot of work being done. In fact, personally, I contributed to a, a joint study in 2000 it was published, I wrote about the Pacific Islands, uh, Kazakh colleagues wrote about um, Semipalatinsk, and it was published in Russian uh, in 2000, just after you know, the, the change in the Soviet Union and uh, um, the, just before the collapse of the USSR. Dissidents in Russia published a very interesting journal um, that collected nuclear testimonies. And so from that time, over the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of work done about Semipalatinsk. A lot of work happening around um, Algeria now, um, for a long time it was uh, uh, silent because, um, you know, the Algerian National Liberation Front, FLN, fought uh, uh, for independence. It was a terrible bloody war from 1954 to 1962. More than a million people died. It was a vicious, vicious war on by the French against the anti-colonial movement. But part of the Evian Peace deal um, that ended the war allowed the French to keep military bases in the country for five years. And during that period, the French continued their military base uh, in the Sahara Desert for nuclear testing. So there were a number of nuclear tests conducted after independence. And for a long time, neither the French government nor the Algerian government wanted to talk about this. So between 1962 independence and 1965, French continued underground nuclear testing in the Algerian desert. And during that time, they were building the base at Mururoa and Vangatova Atoll. And when the base in the South Pacific was ready, the nuclear testing centre was ready, they relocated from Algeria to the South Pacific. But neither the French nor the Algerians really wanted to say, well, the Algerian National Liberation Front won a great victory against French colonialism, but we let them keep testing nuclear weapons in the desert afterwards. Sort of takes a bit of the gloss off the great victory. So there was a silence about it for many decades and indeed it was only in 2007 when France was proposing to sign a new uh, peace and trade deal with um, uh, the Algerian government that some people in Algeria said hang on you guys haven't cleaned up the mess that you left during the nuclear testing period and there was a major congress in um, Algiers uh, the first time ever decades after the end of the um, the, the war, uh, where Algerians spoke about the health consequences. And it was a terribly moving, moving thing. I mean, I met um, a guy who'd been a, an FLN prisoner in jail uh, with colleagues. And one day they were taken out of jail, flown south to uh, Regan in the middle of the Sahara Desert, and were told to dig a hole lot of trenches. And what that was, was the trenches for the cabling between the bunker where the French scientists were and where France did its four atmospheric nuclear tests. Before they did underground testing, they did four nuclear tests in the atmosphere. And these FLN prisoners were used to dig the trenches for the cabling into the contaminated test site. And after they dug the trenches, these poor bastards were put on a, fly- on a plane and flown back and thrown back in prison. And um, he hadn't told his story before. Not surprisingly, there weren't many records on the French side about what they'd done. And um, there was a whole series of stories like that. A wonderful Iraqi guy who was an Iraqi dissident who'd fled Saddam and ended up, um, he was a left-wing dissident against Saddam Hussein, ended up in Algeria for sanctuary. He was an expert on camels. We were sitting at morning tea and he started asking me about camels in Alice Springs. He'd been to Alice Springs, he knew about all the and he knew about the history the Afghan history of Australia, more than I did, frankly. He'd been studying how camels had been affected by the nuclear testing around Inekir, the water uh, sites, the oases, the wadis, had been polluted by nuclear testing. And he'd been doing this study, uh, supposedly about the camels, but also interviewing the Tureg nomads who used those sites and found all the health problems that the Tureg nomads had. So this is a global story from the deserts of Algeria to the Kazakh Plains to Lopnor in China to India and Pakistan to the furthest islands of the Pacific, this is a global story. And the nuclear era has created sacrifice zones all around the globe. And many of these areas are contaminated beyond remediation. I mean, the Algerians were really interested in the Australian experience, because they'd heard that the British had spent $100 million in the late 90s trying to clean up Maralinga, clean up the desert, where they burnt plutonium and americium and other metals across the desert, and they were interested, could the French pay to clean up Regan, and we, from Australia, were sad to tell them, sorry guys, you can't clean up a desert. Uh, let us not forget too, there's also the whole nuclear power industry, Fukushima, Rocky – Hanford, Rocky Flats, I mean, the list goes on, Chernobyl, the list goes on and on and on. There are sacrifice zones contaminated around the region. It's going to take another four decades to clean up Fukushima and billions of dollars. And you still hear Ning Nongs talk about how we need to go nuclear to address climate change. Okay, let's think about the challenges of climate change, but let's clean up the mess that was created during the 20th century, during the nuclear era, and let's address the rights of the indigenous peoples who bore the brunt, by and large, and the military personnel who staffed the test sites. Let's address the issues of health, of compensation, of reparations, of clean-up. Before we start talking about new power plants, Um, there's a lot of work to be done, and there's a new generation standing up. On the 1st of March this year, at the University of South Pacific, The Marshall Islands Students Association, young students in their early 20s, stood up and had a ceremony saying, let's not forget. March the 1st, the anniversary of the Bravo test, nuclear-free independent Pacific Day. The younger generation are standing up and saying, just because our elders have died, the ones who are there, we cannot forget because it's with us forever.
1: And that's researcher and journalist Nick McClellan. And that's
4: it for me for today, right on time, time now for Done By Law. Bye for now.